Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we better have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that God the Holy Spirit can really guide and direct our thinking tonight because we're going to get into some difficult material, some challenging material, and some material that would demand some concentration. So if you've had a long day, and it'll take about two minutes, and you will be asleep, that's okay. It'll probably be the best sleep you've had all week. So I understand. All right, so let's uh, bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so grateful that we have your word and that as we study your word, God the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us to understand these things. And, and over the course of the last 2,000 years of, of the church that good men have studied the word uh, under the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit and come to gradually, uh, increasingly uh, correct understanding of the word and that we stand today upon their shoulders and we benefit from their work as we continue to think through and try to understand your word more more correctly. Fathers, we study these things. Maybe we be reminded it's not just a an academic pursuit, but it is truly a a desire to come and understand to come to understand your plans, your purposes, and that we realize that behind all of this that we're studying right now is the is your character as you are bringing to conclusion uh, the end of the tribulation, your judgments upon uh, sin and evil in history, and that this is necessary in order to prepare uh, the human race and the planet for the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name, Amen. To bring you back to where we started, we. Ha- finished up in Revelation 19.15 with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, where we read now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. And the sword here is not the short Roman sword, the Machaira, but is the romp of the longer broadsword, sword that was truly an offensive uh, weapon uh, used in the offense and was is a sign of him coming to do violence, to go to war, to bring judgment upon the planet. And with that sword, he will strike the nation. So the, it's going to be a war between the nations of the earth versus the Lord Jesus Christ. The result is stated in the next sentence. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He will bring them into submission. That phrase comes directly out of Psalm 2. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And then third, he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Now that last phrase 
talking about him treading the winepress. This invokes the image of someone walking and crushing the grapes with their feet, the color of the the deep red color of the grapes, uh, reminding us of the color of blood. And so this is an image of bloodshed and is one that is first introduced back in Revelation chapter uh, 14. And in Revelation chapter 14, remember, there were three different angels dispatched, and at the end we have this third angel who has a sickle, and he is ordered to thrust it in, and he, verse 19 says, So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And so the winepress pictures the judgment of God and the uh, trampling of the grapes in the winepress pictures the carrying out of that judgment. Verse 20, and the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Now, 1,600 furlongs is roughly equivalent to about 200 miles, which is approximately the distance from Dan to Beersheba, Dan being the furthest point north in the historical description of the land of Israel and Beersheba being the uh, southern point down in the Negev. And so what this is saying is that this this bloody, violent judgment that will come in this war between the Lord Jesus Christ and the nations of the earth is going to cover the land of Israel. That is referred to by another popular term called the Battle of Armageddon, but is more correctly understood by the phrase that is used in Revelation 16:14 as the battle or the campaign. The word polemos there, where we get our English word polemic, is a word that doesn't refer specifically to one individual battle, but to a series of battles or a military campaign the campaign of the great day of God Almighty. This is why we've taken the time during the last uh, three or four classes to go over the doctrine of the day of the Lord. This is the focal point of the day of the Lord, the great day of the Lord God Almighty, when God brings judgment into time to bring judgment upon the nations, judgment upon sin and evil in time. Not just the, there's the judgment on sin at the cross, This is the judgment in time on the nations and on the human race, and it brings about a cleansing of the planet through the three successive uh, judgments, the trumpet judge, uh, seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments that prepare for the establishment of the millennial kingdom. This is described in several passages that we look at in the Old Testament. One is Joel 3, 9 through 11. There are several of these passages that are uh, somewhat general in their description. They, are not, they don't deal with the specifics of this Armageddon campaign. And one of these is Joel 3, 9 through 11. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. This is the Lord calling the nations to battle. This is the, the same thing that we see in um, Revelation uh, Revelation 14, the passages we just looked at, calling the nations to war, bringing them into the wine press for judgment. 
the call is, prepare for war, wake up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Notice the reversal there of the well-known passage from Isaiah chapter 2, that in, during the millennial kingdom we would beat swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks because of peace established by the reign of the Messiah. This is just the opposite. This is a call for man to uh, come out with all of their weapons of war uh, against God. Uh, verse 11, assemble and come all you nations and gather together all around because uh, your mighty cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. So this is a call to battle there. And then one other, one other passage I'll read is in Psalm 2. All of these are descriptive of the same general uh, campaign of Armageddon. In Psalm 2, a passage we've looked at many times in different perspectives from ascension to the Davidic covenant, begins in verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth. Notice that phrase. That's a phrase we get again and again when we get into uh, especially the details of, of Revelation 14 through uh, 19. There's a specific set phrase. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. His anointed would be his Mashiach, his Messiah. So against the Lord refers to God the Father. Against his anointed refers to God the Son. Their battle cry is, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And then the scene shifts in verse 4 to God's response to their attempts to break out from under the control of God. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. And he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So this, these first five verses of Psalm 2 refer to that battle as God just, just laughs in derision at these puny human leaders who think that they can somehow uh, rule the planet on their own and somehow cast aside the sovereign authority of God. And so this comes to be called the Battle of Armageddon because Roman, I mean, Revelation uh, 16 describes it as, uh, as such in verse, uh, about verse 16 or 17, but more specifically the battle of the, or the campaign of the great day of God the Almighty. Now in the past, I've taught through this in terms of the eight, uh, eight stages of the campaign of Armageddon. Now this general outline was, was really well developed. The first person I saw to do this was, um, Arnold Fruchtenbaum. And Arnold did a great job of organizing the, the data. There's a massive amount of Old Testament data that refers to these different events. What, you, what I've found in many other writings is just a summation of areas that are involved in the battle. In Edom, in the southern part of Judea, the Valley of Armageddon, Armageddon the, um, the Valley of Megiddo, the Valley of Esdralon, or the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the fact that the Lord comes down at uh, on the Mount of Olives. And this, but 
very few people try to put this, all of this data together in an organized fashion. And Arnold did a great job of this. And many times over the years, I have taught this in a general fashion where we have gone through it, for example, in one class. And this is pretty standard operation for most pastors as we grow and learn from our teachers. Eventually we get to a point where we, we start breaking down all of the details of, um, of some of these things and begin to say, hmm, I'm not quite sure I really think this is what's going on. It takes time to work through all these different passages exegetically. And over the last 10 years or 11 years, I think I started teaching Daniel back in 99. And between teaching and Daniel, teaching various prophetic things in the uh, Gospel of John, and all the way up through through uh, Revelation, going back through these, I've constantly matured and refined my own understanding. So I want to go back and and take this now in a little more detail and try to put together some of the passages that we haven't uh, perhaps looked at as much and try to um, organize some of the Old Testament passages in a way that... Uh, uh, helps us to see why uh, all, the, all of this is going on. So generally what we have is, is these eight stages. There's the gathering of the armies of the Antichrist at, at, the, the, uh, at Megiddo, the Valley of Megiddo, followed by the destruction of Babylon. And then we have the fall of Jerusalem that takes place. Then the armies of the Antichrist attacking the uh, remnant of believing Jews down in uh, Basra, in the area uh, around Petra, down in the southern part of the uh, modern kingdom of of Jordan, Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. Then we have Israel's regeneration as a nation, not individually. I think the individuals were already saved before they go down there. That's why they respond to the Lord's command from Matthew 24, that when you see this sign, meaning the abomination of desolation, when you see this sign, flee to the mountains, and that is why they have fled down there. So I think they're already saved, but this is talking about the nation as a corporate entity accepting Christ as their Messiah. Then Jesus returns not to the Mount of Olives. See, we often go to that passage in Zechariah where his feet touch down on the Mount of Olives. That comes later. But first he comes and rescues the uh, remnant in Petra, and then he leads them on a campaign back to Jerusalem, defeating the armies of the Antichrist uh, along the way, going to the Mount of Olives, which then splits in two, allowing the remnant that's trapped in Jerusalem to escape. And then he destroys, um, then he destroys the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the um, and the armies of. of um, the armies of the Antichrist, cast them into the lake of fire, that is the false prophet of the Antichrist, and cast Satan into, uh, in, into the abyss where he is chained for a thousand years. We'll get to those judgments that come at the end of that time uh, after we finish this series. But this will take us th- three or four classes to go through the details here because of some of the complexities that are involved here. It's interesting, uh, my good friend Dan uh, Ingram's been covering some of this in a different way uh, in, at, at his church. So we've been going back and forth on the telephone about this passage and that passage, and he's raised good questions. It's always good to see men sharpening one another as they ask questions. And I've talked with uh, 
some others along the way, so it's it's been a good time of clarification. Now, one of the passages that came up that is a is, I think is a prelude to these eight stages is in Daniel chapter 11. So let's turn in our Bibles tonight to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel 11 is primarily a historic passage. That is, that the vast majority of the events in the 11th chapter of Daniel have been fulfilled historically. They refer to the historic uh, historic battles, historic jockeying for power and control over the Middle East between the descendants of two of Alexander the Great's uh, generals. Uh, the uh, Seleucid Empire took over the area of Syria and Turkey and initially, uh, initially had, did not have control over the area of, of Jerusalem. The southern king is uh, the, the descendant of Ptolemy and the Ptolemaic Empire, and that is referred to as the king of the south. And so they jockey for power back and forth as to who is going to control the area in the Middle East. And so we see a historic description it goes down to verse 35. And all of the events from the beginning of 11.1 down through verse 35 have, can all be identified historically. So that is not prophetic. But once you get to verse 36, there are things that are said that are not true historically of Antiochus Epiphanes specifically because he is the uh, king of the north by this time, the king of the uh, Syrian uh, part of the old uh, Greek empire. Because, for example, in verse 36, we read, And the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. That's not what Antiochus did. Antiochus exalted Zeus. He is the one who put a, uh, sacrificed a pig, in the temple and set up a, uh, an idol to Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem. But he did not exalt himself above Zeus. He did not exalt himself above every god. He was exalt, exalting the worship of Zeus, and he was hostile to the worship of the god, uh, the god of the Jews. So there is a shift that takes place in verse 36, and verse 36 down to the end of actually to the end of chapter 12, really deals more with uh, future things, events that have yet to have, been, uh, to have been fulfilled. But we come to an important verse here in verse 40. Verse 40 begins, at the time of the end. Wait a minute, if we're in the end time, starting in verse 36, what does he mean at the time of the end? Is this a general reference to the end of the age for Israel, this Daniel's 70th week, or is this referring to the actual end of the 70th week period? And so in verse 40, we read at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him. Well, we have to identify who the him is. The king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. 
He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Now, we have to address some of these questions just to make sure we understand this. And the first thing we have to do is identify who the hymn refers to, and we have to identify when the time of the end is. As I pointed out before, when we get to verse 36, the events from that point on have never been fulfilled historically. And what we see is a description that most dispensationalists, most who view this as the end time period within Daniel's 70th week, uh, view this as the time of the abomination of desolation when the Antichrist, the first beast of Revelation 13, identifies himself as God and to be worshipped as God and sets up his idol in the in the t- uh, temple. So verse uh, 11, verse 36 says, Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. Now this, notice the similarity with Second Thessalonians 2.4 describing the Antichrist again as the one who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God. See, the first part of that is taken almost directly out of Daniel, and the second adds new information that he sits as God in the temple of God. Now, this this event takes place at the midpoint of the tribulation. This is similar to what is stated about him in Revelation 13:6. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And Revelation 13:15 related to the second beast, the false prophet. Uh, he was granted pro- uh, power to give breath to the image of the beast, that is the first beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So what we see here is that these these four verses all relate to the same kind of situation where the Antichrist makes himself to be God, elevates himself above all other gods, and is to be worshipped as God. That is clearly a, a benchmark of time that this is the abomination of desolation. Verse 39 of that uh, previous paragraph in in, uh, Daniel 11 says, Thus he shall act according to the strongest fortresses with a foreign god, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many. And that would be the many would refer to Israel and divide the land, that is the land of Israel, for gain. So he's going to start parceling out the land of Israel to his cronies and to his allies as rewards. So when we come to verse 40 and read at the time of the end of the king of the uh, at the time of the end the king of the south shall attack him and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind the time of the end is near the end of the second half of the tribulation it's going to be re- it, but it's obviously before the eight stages of the of the uh, campaign of Armageddon this is a prelude to it. This sets up what will happen uh, in the, those eight stages. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. The king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, with many ships. Now, that's an interesting 
phrase and one that is not easily understood right now because uh, it's, it relates to the military power of the king of the north. Now, before we can go any further, we have to stop and identify the king of the south and the king of the north. I would bet that if I gave you a pop quiz and I asked you to identify the king of the north, that most of you would put down Russia or something similar, and you would all be wrong, every single one of you. And let me show you why. Basic principle of hermeneutics. We start off in chapter 11, and you read through the introductory four verses, and then in verse 5 we read, Also the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes. It goes on and on and on. In verse 6 it says, For the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. Now, who's the king of the south in that passage? It's Egypt. Who's the king of the north? Syria. Historically, in the, those first 35 verses, the king of the south is the Egyptian Ptolemaic Empire. The king of the north is the Ptolemaic Empire that was primarily Syria, Turkey, uh, which is important to see. Let's put this map here. Uh, the area of, of, uh, of Turkey, the whole Anatolian Peninsula here, maybe even going up somewhat towards the Caucasus Mountains, uh, towards Russia. But this is the area of the King of the North, and this is the area of the King of the South. As you read through the text, and you come down to verses uh, 36 to 39, and then on into 40, and at, the, at verse 40 it says, At the time of the end, the King of the South shall come. You can't all of a sudden make the King of the South refer to something other than what it's already been referring to. Neither can you make the king of the north refer to something that it hasn't already been referring to. Okay? Basic hermeneutics. You can't switch your meanings in mid-sentence unless you identify that hasn't happened. Now, I think that the king of the south and the king of the north represent coalitions and that these coalitions are clearly larger than what they were when you had these battles between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids in the uh, 3rd century B.C., but they still basically represent those general areas. Now, where people get into problems, and it never fails to surprise people, and I'm talking about Bible students, and they think, well, the king of the north is what attacks in the Gog and Magog invasion, Ezekiel 38 and 39. And the answer to that is, go read Ezekiel 38 and 39 and just tell me where you see the phrase king of the north in Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's not there. They are invaded from the far north, but the invasion of whoever that military power is from the far north is different from the king of the north. Okay, and we have to make these distinctions in Scripture, just as when we get into Revelation, we have to understand there's a difference between the kings of the earth, and then we have the kings of the east, and then we have the ten horns that make up the power base of the revived Roman Empire of the Antichrist. So we have to make sure we identify who these different groups of, of people are. So Daniel 1140 identifies that there's going to be this battle between the king of the south who will attack the Antichrist and the king of the north will come against him like a whirlwind. Now, he has set himself up to be worshipped in Jerusalem, so he's got an outpost there. But remember, his main kingdom is in out of Europe. It is the revived Roman Empire. 
So it has elements of the old Roman Empire plus some new elements. That's what we learned from Daniel chapter 2 with the ten toes that are made of iron and clay, the iron representing elements from the old Roman Empire and the clay, new elements. So it's clear that it is an outgrowth. Those ten toes are an outgrowth of the old Roman Empire. So that's his initial power base. The ten nations, the ten kings come out of that area. Then we're going to have this king of the north and the king of the south. And then we also have another group referred to as the kings of the east. But before we get there, let's just, let's not get too much on our, uh, before us as we go through this. So the, what it, it seems to me is what happens is this. Let's just stop and get a little bit of an overview. The Antichrist has consolidated his power after he is miraculously brought back from the dead. He is indwelt by Satan. He is empowered by the dragon, Revelation 13 says, and the Antichrist and the false prophet are performing all of these signs and wonders. Economically, they come to control the whole world. It is a worldwide dominion. He manages to utilize his power base from Western Europe, I believe, and maybe Eastern and Western and Eastern Europe, to uh, intimidate and to control the Middle East. And I believe that there he utilizes Babylon as an economic power base to further his ends to control. Uh, to further control over the over the earth. Now, one thing I've learned uh, recently that I didn't know is that up until about the 1970s, Beirut was sort of the Wall Street of the Middle East. It was the banking center for the Middle East. But once Lebanon began to uh, fall apart in the 70s, the Middle East no longer has a a real central banking area. Now, yesterday there was a report done on Fox uh, Business Channel. Uh, one of their correspondents went to speak to one of the heads, uh, one of the um, uh, top people in Syria, and Syria is trying to get an exchange uh, like the New York Stock Exchange going. And it's very, very small, and they're trying to get uh, Syria to open up to uh, Western economic uh, uh, investment. You've also had Dubai and the attempts in Dubai to build a real strong uh, economic center down there, and Dubai is just falling apart economically right now. And I think all of this is, some, is an attempt to try to establish some sort of economic center, a really solid, stable uh, economic base somewhere in the Middle East. And there have been, there have been suggestions I have uh, read and heard of of even using Babylon, and that's what I believe will happen is that Babylon will be rebuilt as this economics banking center in the Middle East. Now, this is where if you've read Arnold Fruchtenbaum, this is where, and I've read him and I've picked up some of his vocabulary inadvertently when I've referred in the past to Babylon as the Antichrist capital. That's, that's Arnold's view. I don't think it's his capital. I think it's the economic center that he has made an alliance with in order to expand his uh, power over the whole earth. But this then begins to, to fragment when, when you get into the second half of the, of the second half of the tribulation, that last quarter of the tribulation, his empire begins to fragment. He can't hold it together. The first sign of this is that the king of the north uh, begins to break loose and attack his his outpost in, in Israel, 
and the king of the south does as well. And so we go on to read in, um, in this that, he, that uh, the king of the uh, south uh, attacks him. The king of the north comes up against him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen, many ships. And they, and, but he, and uh, this, that last phrase, he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. So now he's going to come in from the, uh, from the west, and he is going to overrun their armies and to establish himself in the Middle East. This is what's going to bring all of the military might of the Antichrist kingdom into the Middle East. And his staging area is going to be the Valley of Esdralon, also called the Valley of Jezreel, which is the valley that extends just below the hill of Megiddo. Uh, which mean literally in, in Hebrew that is Har Megiddo or Armageddon. So he's going to come down into the glorious land, verse 41. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand. And he, three are listed here, Ammon, Moab, or Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Now, those three areas I've circled on the map on the screen, those are all part of the modern Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. Moab and Edom are particularly noteworthy because they are the area right around the area of Basra, Petra, that area where we know that the remnant of Israel will flee and there will be a major battle uh, between the Messiah and the forces of the Antichrist down in that area later on. But initially... He's not able to control that area. So this gives the Israelites a place of refuge, a place to flee to uh, as he is uh, persecuting them. Verse 42 says, He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. That's the king of the south. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also, the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heel. Now, that phrase is another one that is particularly uh, challenging to interpret. I have seen some that say that um, this is an idiom, shall follow at his heels, means that they are attacking him. Uh, another view is this is an idiom, meaning that they will uh, follow uh, after him. In other words, they are align- aligning themselves with him. And then a third view is a view that he only goes that far in his, in his uh, southern uh, probe. He goes down, he attacks, defeats Egypt, but he doesn't go any further than their, uh, the boundaries of Libya to the west and Ethiopia to the south. So he turns his back to those areas and goes back to the land of Israel, so he, uh, they are at his heel, they are behind him. I particularly like that. I think that has some real potential because if the Ezekiel 38 and 39 invasion has already taken place, Libya and Ethiopia, are, are, are Sudan, actually in this, there, that area, have already been wiped out. No matter where you put that battle, uh, whether you put it before the tribulation, the early part of the tribulation, mid-tribulation, or the initial stages of Armageddon, that's already they, they've been wiped out. So I think that it fits best if this is just showing the extent of his, of his thrust into the south. And the reason he turns around and goes back 
is because of verse 44. He says, but news from the east and north shall trouble him. Now, east and north, we always have to understand these these terms from uh, the perspective of, of Jerusalem. So east would be back towards Babylon, and north would be north towards possibly Russia. I think it's distinct from the king of the north because he's already defeated the king of the north. So this this could relate to the to a northern power. Uh, that is why some think this might relate to a timing of the perhaps the Ezekiel 38 and 39 invasion. If that hasn't happened yet, then, and I'm not sure of that, and I don't want to get in. I'm not going to go there tonight. I may get into that later on, but uh, not tonight. Therefore, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall, verse 45 says, and he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas, that would be the Mediterranean, and the glorious holy mountain, that would be the temple mount. Uh, yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. So this just sort of summarizes what happens as he goes back into the land, but the details are, are left out. Now, wh- what about this news from the east and the north that troubles him? Well, going back into Revelation 16, where we're looking at the sixth bowl judgment, Revelation 16:12. the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Now, this obviously is designed to enable the kings of the east to move west into the area of, of Israel and move to the, uh, to the area of Armageddon. Now, are they coming as allies are they coming as foes? Now, that's an important question. Now, this is where I have a disagreement with, uh, with, with Arnold because Arnold sees them as allies. But then you, got, you run into a real problem with the, what happens in the next stage, and this is where really things got very interesting in terms of uh, study and trying to uh, parse out a lot of different things. Um, the great river you phrase is water's dried up, so the way the kings of the east might be prepared Verse 13, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons that are going out to gather the kings of the earth. Now, remember, I made this distinction between the kings of the earth and the ten horns or the ten kings that are the specific power base of the Antichrist. So these are the spirits of demons. They go out to gather the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, he says, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. So they gathered together at Armageddon. Now I'm going to skip that slide, and now we'll go back over here and start going through this, this material a little more all that's just prelude. So we have the first part, the first stage of the campaign of Armageddon, the gathering of the armies of the Antichrist, and not just his. Some of this slide shows, I haven't had a chance to revise yet, but part of the problem is if you look at it, there's a, a, a kind of a tan line running from Babylon over to the Valley of Armageddon. That it will represent the kings of the east that are coming. 
Are they coming against the Antichrist? Daniel 11 seems to suggest this because he's worried he hears this rumor from the north and from the east. That also seems to make sense if these kings of the east have been somehow responsible for the destruction of Babylon. So here we have a map of the of the Middle East, and this is the location of Megiddo, and Babylon is located due east on the Euphrates River. Remember, it's the Euphrates that is dried up, so the kings of the east... And once again, East must be understood from an ancient Near Eastern perspective. We're not talking about China and Japan. We're talking about Persia, uh, Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, that area. And so this is an army from this particular area that is going to be moving East to meet with the Antichrist. And I think this is, this is hostile. And I'll show you why in just a minute. So that refers to the gathering of the armies of the Antichrist and a couple of passages that um, I put these in the wrong place. We have the first stage, which is the gathering of the armies of the Antichrist. Then the second stage has to do with the destruction of Babylon. Now, here's what's interesting in the destruction of Babylon. Just bear with me as we go through this. First, I want you to turn to Zechariah Chapter 5. Zechariah chapter 5. Second to the last book in the Old Testament. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Zechariah chapter 5. This is just, I don't know if this is fun for you, but this is great fun for me to try to put all this together. It's like a large jigsaw puzzle. And you know it's all going to fit because God said it does. Now, in Zechariah 5, 5-11, Zechariah has this vision of the woman with the ephah. The angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift your eyes now and see what it is that goes forth. So I asked, What is it? And he said, It is a basket that is going forth. He also said, This is their resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. Uh, then he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. They lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. So I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me, to build a house. Sorry about that. To build a house in the land of Shiner. When it's ready, the basket will be set there. Now, the land of Shiner, let's go back to a map, I think, right here. The land of Shiner is this area right here. See, all area of Babylon. So this woman is going to be set down there, and the, the lead indicates uh, <clears throat> the value there. It's not silver. It's not gold. It's lead. It's a false uh, economic measure. And it indicates that the <clears throat> ephah, uh, this woman in the basket that this indicates a uh, the false economic base that is going to come out of Babylon uh, as this economic center. So Zechariah 5 <coughs> stresses that this is the uh, area of Babylon that will be the center of the world economy in the future. So that's the first thing I want to take you to. The second thing I want to take you to is... 
in Revelation 17:16. Revelation 17:16. I think I have a slide up here. Revelation 17:16, which we went through these chapters in detail, and I'm modifying some things a little bit. The ten horns which you saw on the beast, remember the ten horns represent the ten kings, the ten kings that were the basis for his, his empire. The ten kings, uh, these will hate the harlot. The harlot is riding the beast. The ten horns are part of the beast. The ten horns and beast all represent the Antichrist kingdom, but it's different from the harlot, which is Babylon. Babylon is now become an onerous master of the Antichrist power base. And the ten horns, these will hate the harlot. They will make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. They don't like Babylon. The ten horns, the Antichrist kingdom, by this point, does not like the harlot, does not like Babylon. And they will destroy her and burn her with fire. So who is it that destroys Babylon? Seems from this passage that it is the Antichrist kingdom. Now, the other group that's mentioned in relation to this in Revelation 18.9 are the kings of the earth. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her, benefited from all of the economy of the, of the end times there, uh, will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning. So she's destroyed by burning. That's who burns her? Well, it seems like in 1716, it's the ten horns. But they're different from the kings of the earth. The ten horns hate her. The kings of the earth mourn over her. Now, this is where the plot thickens a little bit. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah 13 and 14 are key chapters for the destruction of Babylon. Isaiah 13 begins... Uh, dealing with this in terms of the day of the Lord. Identify in Isaiah 13, 6, Wail for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Chapter 14, we see the fall of the king of Babylon, who is uh, then taunted uh, as Lucifer, who's the power base behind all of that And uh, when we get into chapter 14. Now just look at the first, I just want to look at the first three verses. The burden against Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, lift up a banner on the high mountain, raise your voice to them, wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. Notice verse 3. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for my anger, those who rejoice in my exaltation. In other words, those who rejoice in what I rejoice in. The noise of a multitude in the mountains like that of many people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. They come from a far country from the end of heaven, the Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land, which in context is Babylon. They're Gentiles, okay, that are coming against Babylon. But they're identified in verse 3 as sanctified ones. Now, this comes from the same root, the same Hebrew word, kadash, which means saint or holy. And it has the idea of those who are set apart for the service of God. That's just the core unvarnished meaning, those who are set apart for the service of God. Now, Arnold makes, comes to the conclusion 
and I'm not picking on Arnold. I'm just, I know some of you read Arnold and listen to him, and I've benefited from him, but I'm just trying to work my way through this. Arnold takes a position that these sanctified ones, that that means they must be believers. And his conclusion is that this is a, an army of Gentile believers that attacks and destroys Babylon. Now, I've got a problem with that because I just don't think there's enough believers left at this time in the tribulation to be able to mount a major military assault against Babylon and destroy it. So I think that I, I, I just can't go there. But there is a basis for thinking that, for example, as the Lord said that Cyrus was his anointed one, Cyrus was an unbeliever, no indication he ever was a believer, but he was chosen by God and appointed to a particular role to release the Jews to go back to the land. Same thing here. I think that God is calling them a set apart, a group that is set apart by him and his plan to accomplish the task of destroying Babylon. Now, this seems to fit with a statement in Jeremiah 50, verses 9 and 10. For behold, I will raise and cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country. Now, if you're thinking north of Babylon, you're thinking Russia. But if you're thinking north of Israel, you can think north, you can think uh, Russia. But if you go over to Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, which I said I was, I'm not going to go through the whole issue of when does this take place, but I just want to point this one thing out. I'll, I'll read it for you. If you go over to Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Lord says in verse 3, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I think I have a map here. No. Maybe it, where did that map go? I saw it a minute ago. There we go. Okay. Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. That's generally thought of as in the area of the Caucasus up into uh, the area of modern Georgia, maybe even going across the north of the Black Sea to include uh, areas of modern Ukraine, which we could extrapolate perhaps to Russia. Um, against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and there are many who think that the terms Rosh, uh, or, or excuse me, Meshach is, Rosh is somehow related to Russia, Meshach related to Mos the root of Moscow. Um, verse 4 says, I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, lead you out with all your army, horses, etc., etc., uh, talks about the alliance, and then it goes. In, and then verse six mentions Gomer and all of its troops, the house of Togerma, from the far north, and all its troops. Notice that from the far north. So we know from tracing back these ancient words like Gomer and Beth Togerma, going back and tracing them through the table of nations in Genesis ten and eleven, that the areas where where these people groups settled would be in Eastern Europe and Germany. Many times in the ancient world you have uh, different groups that have, where you have, uh, I mean, different languages were based on, like Hebrew, a three-letter root. Like Gomer would be G-M-R, uh, the area of the Chimerians, uh, uh, C-M-R. Sometimes you have this, this movement from language to language where a G will harden to a C or a K, and a K will soften to a G. Sometimes you'll get a trans, uh, a shifting of consonants M and R. So G, M, R, if you have a consonant shift to G, R, M, that's the root of Germany. And then up in that same area where I have Gomer, 
you have Lake Ashkenaz, and Ashkenaz was a descendant of Gomer in Genesis uh, uh, chapter 10, the Table of Nations. And so there's very ancient names in these areas of Eastern Europe that can be traced back to people who came off the ark in the first five or six generations after, uh, after Noah. And so that area of the, is called the far north here in Ezekiel chapter 38. So if that's the far north, Gomer and Beth Togarma, that's coming out of Eastern Europe. That could very easily be part of the uh, Antichrist power base that is attacking Babylon because when we read in Jeremiah 50 that th- they're being threatened from the north, that's not the north, remember that's not the north of Babylon, but that is the north of a north country that's north from Israel. And since uh, Ezekiel 38 uses that same uh, north orientation, that would fit and it would back up what is said in um, Isaiah 13, that it is a Gentile power base. Uh, Revelation 17 says that it's part of the Ten Horn Nation Confederacy that destroys the harlot, destroys uh, Babylon, but it's distinct from the other kings. And so this leads us to uh, understanding that you have this this gathering of troops in uh, the area of the Valley of Esdralon, the Valley of of um, Jezreel, which begin is the is the uh, staging area for the battle that is about to take place. Now, got a couple of other shots for you here. Here's the Jezreel Valley from a topographical uh, map, looking at a little bit of a slanted angle. North is is off to the left, angled up, and so you see the Jezreel Valley. It's a huge huge valley. In fact, this was the same area that Nebuchadnezzar used for a staging area when he assaulted into um, into Israel in the ancient world. Uh, many others, nearly anybody who has staged a military campaign in Israel, especially if they've come from the north or the northeast, have used the Jezreel Valley as a staging area, much as uh, the Allies used England as a staging area for uh, putting our troops into Europe during World War II. The fighting didn't take place in England. It took place in continental Europe, but England was the staging area. And that's the idea here. And then this is a a panoramic shot uh, from the top of Mount Carmel showing the uh, Valley of Megiddo stretched out below and across the other side. You can see a couple of hills. Mount Tabor is over there and one or two other significant places. So Napoleon also camped there and said that all the armies of the uh, world could gather there and they would uh, be ready for war. So we've looked at the first stage, which is the gathering at Armageddon, and then the second stage is we have this destruction of Babylon that comes from the Ten Horns as they uh, bring about this assault on, um, on Babylon. A couple of pictures showing the attempts that have been made to reconstruct Babylon today. Uh, these uh, were taken by someone in the military who was stationed there a long time ago, sent them to me. I have no idea who's, who took these pictures, but I've used them several times and really do appreciate them. Uh, a lot is uh, still being done. They're starting to, the Iraqis are starting to 
uh, do more uh, reconstruction there in order to uh, reestablish Babylon. But <clears throat> Revelation 18, we learn that uh, Babylon will be destroyed and the, the mighty an angel will announce, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And in one hour, so all this wealth, it will be, uh, will be destroyed, never to be inhabited again, as is stated in Isaiah 13, uh, 19 and 20. They will be uninhabited like Sodom and Gomorrah, never to be inhabited or lived in again. Uh, the Arab will not pitch his tent there, nor a shepherd rest his flock there. And that has continually happened. Uh, this is not true now. Uh, there are still uh, Arab, there were Arab villages there throughout the period from the time of Christ up to the up to the present. Uh, Jeremiah 50 also speaks of this destruction as being like Sodom and Gomorrah, where no one will ever again uh, live there, and they will be judged because of all the wrong they have done to Zion down through history. So that takes us for, through the first two stages, and next time we'll come back and look at the assault on Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem, as the third stage in the eight stages of the campaign of Armageddon. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time that we have to go through these passages and to and try to put together, uh, compare Scripture with Scripture and put together these different uh, pieces of the prophetic puzzle pray that you would give us wisdom as we go through this and that uh, above all we can come to understand that you have planned and uh, planned this out and you have prophesied these details from eternity past and this is exactly what will take place in the future as you come to destroy the forces of evil and to establish your kingdom. May we be encouraged by the fact that you do control history and even though unrighteousness and injustice uh, may survive for a time that there will be an accounting and there will be eventual judgment. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.